This is a One and All Media podcast. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Bringing people far from God near to God. We believe in one truth that will be delivered in love and compassion. Connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. Today. Today. Today with Jeff Fines. This is Today with Jeff Fines. My name's Aaron, and welcome to the program. I'm glad you're here because we're in the middle of our series titled The Story. And you know this if you've caught the past few episodes, as we explore all of the major events in the Bible, starting with the book of Genesis and ending with the book of Revelation. Today, Pastor Jeff is going to be in Isaiah chapter 53 and 54, if you'd like to follow along. He's going to explain the upper or broader story, which is God's plan for the wider world. And he's also going to explore the lower story about the journey of the Hebrews. Here's Pastor Jeff with today's message. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, over to Isaiah chapter 53 and 54 and just hold those uh, two powerful parts of scripture that we're going to investigate as we continue our series called The Story, looking at the major narratives of the Bible that give to us both the higher story, the upper story, what God is doing throughout the whole world, and the lower story through these Hebrew narratives of what God is doing specifically among his people Israel. Now, uh, just to help you get started, how many of you have ever done anything really, really stupid? Anybody? How many of you, if I were to ask you to choose from uh, something really, really stupid, it's like numerous things you've done. You'd, you'd have to have like a half a day to tell me all the dumb things you've done. It's okay. That, that would be, I'd definitely go in that category. How many of you have done something really, really stupid and because you did something really, really stupid in the past, you gained a nickname that you've kept till this day? Anybody besides me? Okay, just a few of you. That's cool. That's cool. Now, I've told you uh, this story a few times, but there's a lot of new people, so I'll, I'll summarize it, tell it short. But when I was about 13 or 14 years old, and you know, when you're 13 or 14, that's a volatile age. That's about the age you're trying to find your place in the world. It's also the age that you're starting to notice girls. Girls are starting to notice you. And so you're, you're really trying to make an impression. And our whole city of Elizabeth in Tennessee, about 16,000 people, small town had closed down and everybody was in the gymnasium that night because the local university basketball team was doing a blue and white game. It's where the first string plays the second string. And it's strictly for the hometown folks to see who the upcoming players were. And so our whole town is shut down. We're all in the gymnasium, about 3,000 people. And uh, it was halftime. And my friends and I drew straws to see who would go and get the concessions, stand in line. I went out. They gave me one of these flimsy cardboard boxes where you have, uh, you know, Cokes in the corner and then you have popcorn. So I had like four Cokes and about five bags of popcorn and I'm coming back in. And as soon as I'm coming back in the gymnasium, trying to get there before the second half began, this blonde haired, blue eyed girl walked by me and she gave me the look. Uh, guys can't really explain the look, but they know when they get them. When they get it, they know they've had it. It's the look of interest. And, you know, you have to act upon it because you get so few of those in the time of your life. But this girl walks by and I thought, man, she gave me the look. So I start looking at her and then 
I lose myself in the moment, you know, and I forget where I am. And her look at me changed from interest to, dude, what are you doing? Because I'd forgotten where I was. And about the time I realized where I was, I was out on the court and the second half had started. And uh, true story now, last thing I saw out of the corner of my eye was a striped shirt. The official was running ahead of the play to get ahead. So he wasn't looking at me. He was looking behind him. And I wasn't looking at him. I was looking at the girl. And suddenly we collided. And with 3,000 people uh, on their feet watching this fast break, there was this cloud of popcorn that just kind of shot into the sky. And this Coke went everywhere. And the official kind of looked at me and said, dude, what, what, are, what are you doing? And of course, my life in my mind was totally over. I was hoping that nobody uh, saw me, but of course they all did see me and they gave me a nickname that I will never tell you, no matter how many times you ask me. As a matter of fact, when I go back to my hometown, they still refer to me by this nickname, which is why I never go home. And so, so I learned a valuable lesson about that that day. I really did. And I, want to, and I think it kind of summarizes where we are in the story. And the lesson is this, it's best to keep your eyes on the creator and off his creation. Because here's the problem in the story. You're going to see this time and time again. Every time God blesses the people of Israel, uh, they start worshiping the created thing rather than the source of their gifts. And I've warned us, I've said, this is our generation of people. This is us. This is what we do. We get a bunch of uh, blessings in our lives. Think about it. We get a bunch of blessings and all of a sudden God becomes an inconvenience because we'd rather spend time with the blessings rather than the blessor. And so that happens all the way through with the nation of Israel. And so there are times, and God is incredibly patient, but sometimes his patience runs out. And not so much because he's angry as he is, he loves his people. He knows that the best way to live life is to enjoy him and his favor first and foremost. And then all these other things will be added unto you. When you start worshiping the gift rather than the giver, your life is going to begin to fall apart slowly because your soul knows very well that those things you put your trust in are temporary at best. And so the anxiety and the fear that we experience so much in America has a lot to do with where our hope is in, what it's in, rather than some kind of mental illness, which I believe in mental illness. I know that's true too, but there are psychological things going on inside us. In order to discipline the nation of Israel. What he will do is he will bring in foreign nations and he will allow those foreign nations to conquer Israel and to send them into captivity because he's trying to teach his people a lesson. And so in this case, the Assyrians come in and the Assyrians are a powerful nation conquering a lot of territory. And they come in and they occupy Samaria for almost three years. And uh, one of their leaders actually uh, exports 27,000 of the Israelites and disperses them throughout the land of the Assyrians. Doesn't put them all in one place because he doesn't want them to be able to congregate and revolt, come up with any plan of rebellion. So they're dispersed. And Hezekiah sees what's happening because the northern and the southern kingdoms are divided. And in the midst of this, he goes to God and he prays and he says, God, there's no way we're going to be able to defeat the Assyrian army. You're going to have to do something. Now, there's a lesson here. I wish I could have, I mean, I have to choose every week what I'm going to preach on. I could have preached an entire series on Hezekiah alone because Hezekiah reminds us that no matter where you've been, what you've been doing, all it takes is one decision to come back to God and he will release his power into your life. Just one decision. No matter how long you've been away from God, no matter what you've been doing, one decision, one moment of time can be a life-defining moment because Hezekiah looks at what's happening and he repents. And when he repents, he cries out to God and he says, God, you're going to have to do something or the Assyrians are going to destroy us. And you know what God does? You ought to read it sometime. I can't do it now because it's not the message. But in 2 Kings 19, God does something outstanding and saves the people. However, in the midst of this, 
There's a prophet by the name of Isaiah. And Isaiah is hearing the word of the Lord. And Hezekiah cries out and he says to God, God, I notice that you're allowing your people to be dispersed. Jerusalem is going to fall. God, is this how you're going to leave us? What about the covenant you made with Abraham? And Isaiah's response is from God. And you find it in Isaiah 49, although it's not our text. Verse 13 says, shout for joy, you heavens, rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains, for the Lord comforts his people. And he will have compassion on his afflicted ones. And then Isaiah goes on to say, he will bring you back. He will rebuild the city. You will not be dispersed forever. God will bring you back together. He will bring his people back to himself. In the midst of that, though, is where the story gets really good. Because in Isaiah, not only is he prophesying about the lower story, yes, Israel will come back, yes, the city will be rebuilt, but he's also moving into a prophetic word about you and me. All the way back, hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ ever comes, he enters in the upper story, and he tries to tell us what God is doing with all of humanity. Now, this weekend, I'm just a little bit fired up. So if I catch you sleeping, I may come right out there. Because you need to know what happens in this book of Isaiah. It's, it's too good to pass. And it's going to be a pragmatic uh, application. It, there's going to be a theological one. And then there's going to be an eschatological one, which is what is going to happen in the future. Because Isaiah sees this vision. And the vision is meant for you and I. Here's the word of the Lord. Meant for you and I to know how we're supposed to be living in our lives and what God is planning on doing on the upper story. Yeah, I care about Israel. I care about the lower story. But there's a part of me that cares. What, what about my story? What about yours? What's going to happen to us? And he gives us three images. Three images. The first image is this. It's found in Isaiah 54, starting in verse 1. It is a barren woman. And so he, he places this on the, on, the, uh, on the stage and he says this. Sing, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Burst into song and shout for joy, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Now, this makes no sense. More are the children of a barren woman than the children of a woman who's married and has children? That makes no sense. It's paradoxical. What is the, what's Isaiah saying? Why, why should a barren woman rejoice, especially in a culture you know, we talked about this in the ancient world. The more children you had, the better off your nation, the better off your land, the better off your community. Economically speaking, the more children you had, the more workers in the harvest, the more bigger the harvest, the more bargaining power you had with surrounding nations. Militarily speaking, if you were able to have a lot of children as a woman, then you were, you were offering warriors and soldiers to the nation. And the more soldiers and warriors you had served as a deterrent from other nations from wanting to come in and conquer you. And so to speak, a retirement plan happened in children. The more children you had, the more people you had to take care of you in old age. So whether it's uh, creativity, prosperity, longevity, a woman was valued in the ancient world by the number of children she could have. Man, if you could have a lot of children, you're like a hero. But if you were barren, there's really no purpose or use for you in society. You imagine three women going out by the well in the ancient world, and one woman says, you know what? I think I'm only going to have two kids. The other woman would say, what? Have you lost it? Do you have some kind of death wish? It's not about you. It's about our people and our nation. Have as many children as you can. Now, the problem is, and the reason Isaiah starts with this vision is because in humanity, there's the natural tendency to take good things and make them ultimate things to take good things and make them ultimate things. In ancient world, your identity as a woman was associated with your ability to bear children. And if you couldn't bear children, you felt worthless 
because you regard it as worthless. As a fact, Rachel, in, in wanting to give children to Jacob, said, give me children or I die. In other words, give me children or I might as well crawl up in a corner somewhere and just cease to exist because if I can't have children, there's no reason or purpose for my life. Now, here comes the sarcasm. Okay, just warn you. Aren't you glad we live in a modern, advanced civilization where we would never associate or never oppress women by telling them what they had to do, look like, or have before they are considered worthy? Aren't you glad we're so different? We would never tell a woman that unless your lips are like this and your eyebrows are like this and your hair is like this and your waistline is like this and all your curves are like this, Unless you're like that, there's no worth for you in our society. Aren't you glad we're nothing like that? We're so advanced, so beyond the ancient world. We'd never be so shallow. You say, well, Jeff, that's not fair. In the ancient world, they oppressed women. Let me tell you something. Every culture since the beginning of time has oppressed women. Every, they're still oppressed today because we're, we tell you, unless you look this way, you don't really count. Do you really think we don't treat beautiful women better than we do women we don't think are beautiful? But it's not only women, it's men too. Men are oppressed. Men are told this, unless you have a big house, lots of money, a beautiful wife, a beautiful mistress, a BMW, unless you have all these things, then you're worthless. And so most men and most women, it's, it's uncanny, isn't it? We allow the, everybody else to tell us what we ought to be like. And when we're not like that, we get miserable. And we wonder why we're anxious and afraid. The reason he starts out this way is he's trying to say, there's a better way to live life. There's something better than this. As a matter of fact, can I just go out on a limb before I move on? A little tangent here. Can I go out on a limb and say that you will never be able to enjoy the good things until you know what the ultimate thing is? You think about it. For, I was a basketball player, okay? I loved the game of basketball until I got a coach my freshman year. This is before my favorite coach came. My freshman year, we had a coach that lasted for one year. He made winning the ultimate. So much so... That as a young man, I started to realize that, hey, when I perform well, I get the praise of my coaches, my teachers, and my parents. So I started attaching my significance and meaning to my life on the performance on the basketball court. That's a horrible thing to have experience when you're young. Do you know I started to hate the game? I started hating the game because of the roller coaster ride. It put my emotions on. If I played well, I'm acceptable. If I didn't, I'm worthless. I might as well crawl into a corner and die. You start hating the very thing that's meant to be enjoyed because you put it in the ultimate place rather than in the good place. Nothing wrong with basketball. It's a great game. Every one of you in this room have something in your life that you've made ultimate. And because of that, you're miserable because you know you can't trust it. The first image is to tell the barren woman to rejoice. Why would I rejoice if I'm barren in a culture that tells me my sense of self-worth is totally associated with how many children I can have? The answer is in verse five, for your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. What he's saying is you need to rejoice because your husband is your maker, your redeemer. And if you've got God, you got everything. And if you put him as the ultimate Whatever culture tells you is the ultimate, you'll know is a lie. And your peace and joy will come from a sense of being good and right with God. The problem is, and this is why he starts this way, and only this symbols makes the other symbols make sense. He says, most cultures will tell you, do this, be really, really good, try this, work harder, and then you'll achieve a sense of nirvana or some eternal state, and in some case, heaven. 
It's only Jesus that comes along and tells you, and it's starting all the way back here in Isaiah, that his message is completely different. He brings a legal standing to you. He brings something that you get right now. Total security, total status, total position right now because your maker is your husband. And when you come into God through Jesus Christ, the verdict is in now. You don't have to wait. You receive the praise and the delight of God now. You are deemed acceptable, significant, and honorable right now. And the social oppression changes and you can break the shackles and the chains away from what the world tells you makes you significant into what God tells you. And God tells you what makes you significant and meaningful is the fact that Jesus did something very special for you. And you don't have to earn it with God anymore. And as long as, long as you try to make these good things, eternal things, you will be miserable. You can't trick your soul. You just can't. You can lie to your head, but your soul knows if you're living for something that's eternal or temporary. And if you're living for something that is temporary and you think that having more money, a bigger house, a better job, a promotion, if you think those things are going to give you your significance, your soul knows that you're messed up. And the internal damage that happens goes on and on year after year after year. Some of you young ladies, I feel so sorry for you because you're already believing the lie that you've got to look a certain way or you don't have any worth or don't have any significance or that you've got to be married or you're worthless or insignificant. And you've got no idea of the plan God has for you and what he's willing to do through you and in you if you'll just make him the ultimate. Because when you make him the ultimate, the Bible says, then all these other things will be added unto you. You know, you know, so I'm, I'm, you know I'm going to be 50 in a couple of weeks. 50, 5 oh. I mean, there was a time when I thought if you were 50, you might as well be dead, right? And somebody asked me the other day, are you going through midlife crisis? And the answer is, I already did. I, did, I went through midlife crisis at 47. I did. Uh, that was part of my anxiety, the recognition that I will die someday. I'm serious. So I started unbuttoning my shirt and looking for a red Corvette, and I couldn't afford it anyway. But you know what the beauty of going past midlife crisis is? That I don't care what you think of me. It's a, it's a freeing thing. The important thing to me is my wife, my children, and I live my life for an audience of one. And I realized a long time ago, there's no way I'm going to make all you happy. No way. And I don't care anymore. <laughs> I mean, I love you and I will pastor you and I will be here for you when you need me, but I can't possibly make all of you love me. And you know how freeing that is when my ultimate, ultimate is God and what he thinks. And so I'm not on the ebb and flow and roller coaster of culture telling me how I'm accepted and how I'm significant. And I don't have to write a book and I don't have to do this and I don't have to be on TV. I don't have to be, none of that matters, man. Just do what God calls me to do. Do it the best I can honor him. And do you know how much peace I have in my life right now? I'm so happy in my own skin, but that only happens. I wish I could have felt this way when I was 30. I'm trying to save you a lot of heartache. The reason, the reason we start with this is God's trying to say, even all the way back in Isaiah's time, man, if you'll make me the ultimate and stop using these created things and stop worshiping those things that are created, your life's going to be sweet. But then he moves to a second snapshot. And it's this, it's of the suffering servant. 
And we find it in Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Now, how many in the room have ever heard that passage? I mean, it's one of the most famous passages in the Bible. Can I ask you to do something for eight minutes? Hear it for the first time. Even you Bible scholars in the room, and I know we have a lot here that have studied scripture, so you know what you're talking about. I, I, I get that. Will you give me a chance to do something, though? I want to present it to you the way the Hebrew mind would have heard it, because it's no fair. You've got an advantage. You know what's going to happen in the New Testament, and you know who this is. They didn't know who the suffering servant was. They had no idea what this passage was about or who it was about, but they're trying to figure it out. All they knew was this. That while God was working in the lower story and he would send saviors from time to time to save the nation of Israel, Joshua from the walls of Jericho, Moses from the Pharaoh army, uh, Joseph from famine. But there was one that the writers kept talking about called the anointed one, the Meshach, the anointed prince. But they didn't exactly know who he was. They just knew that while the small saviors like Moses, Joshua, while they were going to save the nation of Israel, there was one that was going to come one day that was going to restore everything unto God, but they didn't know a lot about him. Isaiah starts speaking details. And the problem is the Hebrew, as they hear this passage, they're going to have the shock of their lives. Three reasons. Number one, because of the violence of this death in Isaiah 53. How can the anointed one who's going to bring an end to violence suffer violence himself? How can the one who's going to bring an end to injustice suffer injustice himself? So for them, it's like something's wrong. Verse eight, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested for he was cut off from the land of the living. And then Isaiah 53, five, but he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Think about it. Those words are harsh words. They mean to be run through from front to back. So how could the anointed one who's going to save everything, not save himself? So in their minds, they're thinking, this makes no sense. Think about, come on, come on now. How many of you watched Batman and Robin back in the 60s and 70s? Come on, I mean, now you had two episodes, right? You had one episode where Batman got into trouble and the second one where he extricated himself. But you always knew Batman was going to make it. No matter how desperate he looked, you knew Batman was going to make it because he's a hero and if Batman dies, he's got no Batman. Singing is true as Glenn Ford and John Wayne. I mean, how many times did they look like they were dead? But they always came back because he, the hero, John Wayne is not going to die because you have to have more John Wayne movies. John Wayne, he only looked dead, but he was only halfway dead. He wasn't fully dead. If you saw Princess Bride. What about James Bond? I mean, James Bond, he never dies. He just changes faces. <laughs> he never dies. 007 is not going to die. M can die. She did in the last episode, but... James Bond's not going to die. Otherwise, you'd have no more Bond films. 007. In the Hebrew mind, the hero can't die. How is it that the one who's going to save us from all things can't save himself? The one who's going to save us from injustice experiences injustice. The one who's going to save us from suffering suffers and dies. Second, because of the vicariousness of the death in Isaiah. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer and though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering. Now, right there, they would say, whoa, whoa, guilt offering. Remember what a guilt offering was? You had sin. You took the unblemished lamb, spotless lamb. You took it and you made an offering. 
and your guilt was transferred on to the lamb and the lamb was slaughtered because the wages of sin is death. So your guilt was transferred onto the lamb. But here, the anointed one is going to be a guilt offering. How does that happen? Because everywhere in the Old Testament, it says animal sacrifice is okay, but human sacrifice is never acceptable before God. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is this. If you take your life compared to what will be in the new city, Jerusalem, yeah, you'll think back and say, yeah, my life on earth was pretty tough, but compared to what I have now in this five billion trillionth year, man, it was worth it all. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Fines wherever you listen to podcasts. You make me want to dance and sing With every single breath I bring I will bring this offering You are my wonder You bring the wonder Today 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 with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.